By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host. Adam from Adam Young Golf. So last week, we spoke about locus of attention. In other words, what you think about while you swing. And I got a lot of great feedback on that episode. I appreciate everyone reaching out as always. So if you haven't listened to that one, tune back in. Did you get anyone talking to you about that one, Adam? No, no radio, one speaks to radio me. Radio silence. Total no one radio speaks silence. to me. I just get the trolls and the... Uh... <laughs> Actually, surprisingly, most of the questions I get through emails are on locus of attention, but I didn't get anything after the podcast. But that's a good thing because I'm incredibly busy at the moment with the eight-week course. But Yes. Uh, so... I've got a little surprise for everyone. We're not alone. There's someone else on the recording with us. We have Marty Jertson from Pink. So what's up, Marty? Thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm doing great. Everything's good out here in Arizona. So thanks for having me on, boys. Nice. So tell us what you do for Ping. Yeah, that's a tricky one to answer. I work on a little bit of everything, but my, you know, I'm an engineer. My current job title is the vice president of fitting and performance, which is kind of this blanket title that covers, you know, pretty much everything we do on the club fitting side, education, fitting science, all of our fitting tools, philosophies, methods. But my background before that was I was a designer. So I did a lot of CAD work, uh, a lot of golf physics research, worked on shaft grips, heads, drivers, putters grooves you name it and was the chief chief designer for about five years before transitioning to, to this new role so i've worked on software apps iping putter fitting mems sensors so a little, little bit of everything and uh yeah still working on some fun stuff wow that's a lot of stuff um how old are you body <laughs> i'm 40 now 40 yeah we're all similar age yeah i have not achieved as much as you then because i don't know most of what you just said, but that's that's why we had you on to explain some of this stuff to uh, our listeners. <laughs> yeah, equipment is not my strongest point either. I'm much more of a coach. Equipment's never really been 
hugely on my radar as a kid i think it was because as a kid i used to buy all the clubs thinking that was going to make me a pro and it it didn't and so i kind of went away from that but as i've got better I see the benefits of of well fit clubs, and obviously with launch monitors, radars, we can measure things like spin, launch angle, and I see how the club affects all that information. Yeah, yeah. In today's age, with the equipment, you, you know, players can make some mistakes, you know, or even fitters can make some mistakes on you know thinking something's the right thing to do or the right thing to chase that can actually be harmful. So we're trying to just put a lot of content, a lot of education, training out there to both our club fitters, but also also consumers, golfers, about what is the right thing to focus on. Hey, go ask your fitter this when you go in and get fit. There you go. Um, let's let's start with that. What are the common mistakes that I suppose you don't want to call people out, but maybe fitters make or amateurs make in, in club fitting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we started writing this blog on ping.com. So it's called the Ping Proving Grounds blog. So our, our on our campus here, we call our little engineering tour ping works we have our motion capture enzo this is like the proving grounds and so we're writing this blog to try to empower folks about some of those some of those topics in indeed adam and one of them you know i think i'm driving one of them is that high launch low spins for everybody or it's optimal or everyone should chase that we've kind of debunked that over the last couple of years that your optimal launch conditions are dependent as much on your attack angle as they are on your club head speed. So this whole idea, you know, 17, 17 or 18, you know, whatever is not the right launch conditions for everybody. We have some great tour player high speed examples, Cameron Champ, Lee Westwood that launch it. What we would look at previously and I thought before we did this research is too low with too high spin. But these guys hit down on it, you know, so you need to factor in their speed and their angle of attack to figure out what is like the perfect launch conditions. If you have the ability to change angle of attack, then does that high launch, low spin become more optimal, at least in terms of distance? So for example, say you were to take Cameron Champ, he hits down on it. So yes, increasing loft, increasing the spin will help him. But if you are able to, without disrupting Everything he does, if you're able to make him hit up on it, he could hit it farther, right? Yes, you are absolutely correct. So it's important to have that level of nuance in there. All other things being equal, if you can shift your angle of attack up, absolutely. That gives you the more more potential for distance, and that's a great way. I mean, Stuart Sinks, one of our guys this year that did that, as well as using our, our new fitting chart to get more optimal launch conditions. That Yeah, you, absolutely. If you can hit more up, that's going to be better. But if you're Cameron Champ, and your most repeatable pattern is hitting down on it too. Yeah. Then by all means, they've you know him him and uh, and Foley have messed around with that, and he can hit it further, but it's not the optimal for him. And that that's just a fun conversation, you know. At what what ratio of distance to accuracy should folks be chasing? Well, it brings up an interesting thought with Champ and, and just tour players in general, because I guess they can afford to hit down on it with all their speed, but when you guys do research on quote unquote average golfers who let's say their club head speed is 85 to 95 miles an hour with the driver. How does the context of optimal launch conditions and attack angle change for that? Because, you know, I, I see golfers on the course who I know they're hitting down on it. I know they're launching it too low and probably spinning it too much. And we've, we've discussed this quite a bit on the podcast with those players, like they need all the help they can get, so to speak with, with less swing speed. So what has, 
ping found with like that demographic of player. Yeah, I think that's, you know, this is the ultimate merging of, you know, of, of coaching, fitting, performance, optimization, right? You're, you're absolutely right. You know, if you can teach somebody, and we do that on the range here on RT, our master fitters quite often will help players hit more up on it, show them the potential more distance. And if, you know, if we feel like we, that's where we kind of have this marriage of club fitting and teaching. And I'm, I'm a fan of that, you know. Is, and is having our- a crystal ball as well. You kind of need to, to guess a little bit, like someone could hit up on it. And like when I first started hitting up on it, I hit it worse. Yeah. But the one out of 10 that I hit better was like 30, 40, 50 yards longer. So for me, it's like, well, at the moment I'm hitting it worse, but I know if I put the reps in, I can make this. That's the kind of crystal ball element, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's where we're in a tricky spot where we're, we try to have it ping a very macro long-term outlook on the players. You know, it's not our, our fitting relationship is not as transactional. Go get fit one time and off you go. It's more, you know, let's tune your equipment in. Let's have a relationship. Let's tweak your drivers. You make changes, you know, that's why part of our sleeve and our settings give you the ability to do that. But you know, I think going back to, you know, let's let's say if a player is a little bit slower, let, let's say their ball speed's 120 miles an hour, not 180 like Camp Champ, and they hit down two to up two, their their optimal spin is going to be about 400 RPMs different, and their optimal launch is going to be about three degrees different. So, you know, you guys have seen players, I think, all day long that range from down two to up two. I mean, there's, there's you know, you'll, you'll see that all the time. I mean, you'll see, you'll see players on both sides of that easily. And look at how much those optimal launch conditions change based on just a four degree window uh, change of angle of attack. That just shows shows how sensitive that aspect is to the optimization process. Let me ask you about. I've learned a lot about fitting from my friends at Pete's Golf in New York. They're uh, they're one of your top hundred fitters in the country, and a topic that comes up over and over again with them. And you know we're part of the things we try and do on this podcast is kind of dispel some myths that are in the golf industry. Let's talk a little bit about shafts. I know I've had many hours of conversations of all the nuances of golf shafts, but the one thing I've learned is it's kind of like a dirty underbelly of the golf industry. Like there's no standards, like one company's quote unquote stiff could be another's regular. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about shafts in general amongst golfers. Again, not asking you to go into a 10-hour discussion here, but what are some of like the big myths that you guys want to clear up about shafts? And that can be maybe just drivers or irons. I don't know if you want to go into all of them, but just hit some of the top ones for people. Yeah, shafts are messy. You know, when I first started at Ping, it was, we, we thought we could test shafts on the Ping Man. Oh, here's this repeatable machine. And this is before we started to deep dive uh, kinetics and kinematics and and all this type of stuff. And so no longer do we do anything but durability testing uh, on our robot. We do everything through our 3D motion capture system where we can capture the motion and then we know the mass properties of the club. And so we can do, you know, reverse dynamics and calculate the forces applied at the handle. So the secret to shafts in shaft fitting is how the golfer applies force to the handle so what we do, we've, we've made an algorithm for this. And again, shafts are very messy. We're lucky because we have our own measurement equipment. So we can take the whole industry standards variable out. We've measured all the flexural properties, the EI profiles, the bending stiffness, tip stiffness, balance point weight on our equipment. 
So we've take that variable out and we've created an algorithm and the general flow that we have is that you can use club head speed to get you in the ballpark. So we still do that. You know, we don't think club head speed, you know, you don't want to fit shafts on that only, but that's kind of like when we fit irons for line goal, that's like height and wrist to floor. That's like a good starting point that gets you in the region. And then what we do, we look at how the golfer applies force to it right during the transition. So how are they applying force in that change of direction region? And that's kind of the secret sauce where we've seen players who pull down on the handle a lot, so to speak. If you kind of visualize that, like their hand path comes in at one angle and then it comes down very close to their body. You can picture like Phil Mickelson almost hitting his back or whatever. And we've seen other golfers who their hand path comes into transition and goes out you know, very close along the same path. So they're not going to put as much torque on the handle or deflect the shaft as much. And they generally get along with and through trial and error and empirical and looking at backwards in their playing history of what shafts fit good to them. They do better with a softer shaft because then the shaft is kind of every golfer is kind of solving for how much they want to load it in transition. And so I think one of the myths of shafts is that, you know, they can do something during the impact interval. Like if you play a high torque shaft, you hit it on the toe, somehow that's going to make it go more to the right or let the head gear more. By the time any of those, any of the movement from impact, off center impact gets into the shaft, the ball's already gone. So the shaft is purely a delivery mechanism. Now, that being said, if you have a softer torque shaft, that will change the delivery so torque in general will, will deliver the face more open. And because the face has loft on it, it will also deliver it with more loft. And so that's why, you know, if you can control, we've made shafts like this where you control all the variables, you design one with more torque to it, it's going to deliver the face more open. It's going to bias your trajectory more to the right, all other things being equal. And it's going to deliver a bit more loft. And it's going to obviously feel a little bit softer in the hands, again, depending on how the golfer kind of applies torque to it, to it during the swing. How much of a change could you affect in, in the impact delivery? So say you took someone who is delivering it square at impact, the face square, and then you went to the extreme end of the scale with a, a torque. What effect would that have on face direction generally? Yeah, I mean, we've these shafts, so in the research world, we've made these shafts that are, you know, triple X in flat frequency, you know, this frequency at 350 CPM or something, and we've made them ladies flex uh, in terms of torque, you know, uh, they have six degrees of torque or something. And we've seen the impact delivery change two to three degrees. So, it, yeah, it, it can be quite a bit. For everybody who doesn't think two to three degrees is much, that can be about 30 yards over 250 yards, right? So getting the right shaft matters is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, it matters. It, it's still messy, but we're we're doing a lot of research. You know, I think the long enough time scale is that we'll have tools that will pass on all the knowledge that we have if you got fit in our 3D motion capture system, we're building the roadmap to have tools that are that accurate that a golfer can get fit on with all those algorithms. It'll be backed by our motion capture research. And that's a lot of fun. We're working on that right now. And we're having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, one story that was always told to me that kind of puts all that together and you can hopefully agree with it is the difference between like a golfer like Fred Couples and Nick Price. So if you think of their swings, like Fred Couples had this like really flowing, nice tempo, quote unquote, smooth looking swing. But 
we know he was one of the longest hitters in his day and swinging incredibly fast. Whereas Nick Price had this like short, violent, like quick tempo. And as it was told to me is Nick Price could never find a shaft that was stiff enough for him. And Fred Couples, despite swinging, his swing speed being so fast, did not need as much stiffness in the shaft just as the way his transition wasn't as violent as Nick's. And I think, you know, when you say like club head speed gets you kind of in the area, but like I always get emails like, oh, my club head speed's 105 miles an hour. Should I get this stiff shaft from this manufacturer? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good. Those that's a great example. When I say like club head speed gets you in the area, it gets you it, to within plus or minus one flex. Like that's the precision that it can get you within. But yeah, it's all in the transition. And again, it all comes down to how you're applying force and the timing and the acceleration profile. How you're applying a force and torque through through the handle, and that that's the secret of, of shaft fitting. So as a human, we're always going to have some variability in how we apply force and torque. I mean, even the regular golfer can understand, you know, oh, I swung a little quick on that one, which, you know, I I don't like that phrase, but I can understand that there is some variability. Are there some shafts that are more consistent or respond more consistently along a range of human variability? Is that question way too, too out there or is that... Yeah, no, that's a great question. So one of the interesting things, when we first got our motion capture system, we we wanted to test that hypothesis. We thought that the, you know, the high handicap player, their application of force or their kinetic profile would be highly variable. And it actually, the from the macro level, like it's very repeatable. Like I smile if you look so at the much curves, right now. I'm smiling so much oh, right now for that because yeah. so, so many amateurs say I'm inconsistent, and and to everybody listening. Marty's just saying, guys, you aren't inconsistent. (laughs) Yes, you're consistently bad, but you're consistent. (laughs) Yes. You can be. (laughs) So we're on the same page on that. We're on the same page on that. We have have some golfers around that. We have a lot of good golfers around ping, but we have some high handicap players and people barely play golf. We'll throw them in there and their kinetic profile and their curves are like very consistent swing after swing. So that that kind of feeds the next question, like, is there a shaft that will help repeat best for that player? And what we have found is that it's kind of like the, the Freddie Couples, Nick Price thing. If you can match how they how they transition it and allow the golfer's brain, I think, to kind of be at ease, like, OK, I'm going to put this force on the handle and the club's going to deflect this much. And that's like my sweet spot for me. Then we've seen the repeatability. So that's the secret still kind of in that space. Thank you for the uh, podcast title plug. We try and do mention sweet spot as much as possible. So (laughs) much appreciated. I mean, where do you think I've played ping for the last 20 years and, you know, view the company as kind of one of the pioneers of fitting with the color system and all of that. Where have you seen fitting? Because I think that that word being custom fit gets thrown around a bit. I've seen people who say, oh, I went to my course and I got custom fit by this guy. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. Where have you seen, because it's becoming more popular and I'm happy about that. I always encourage people, you know, if your technique is where it's going to be, maybe if you've gotten lessons and it's going to be consistent, it's time to get fit. Where do you see the industry now? There's a lot of companies popping up. Like how does, you know, from Ping's perspective, is it in a good place? Is there still more to be done? Yeah, I mean, from our standpoint, the more people that get fit, the better. And what I think, to your point, 
Adam, it's we've seen a kind of a bifurcation or a some t- different tiers of custom fitting experiences in the market. And so we're, what we're doing is we're working on supporting that. So, you know, back, you know, uh, 20 years ago, you had a, a no launch monitor. You rolled out our fitting card or our competitor's fitting card. You go to the range, you fit line goal and some shafts and boom, you're done. Okay. Nowadays, we're going to have to, that, that fitting experience might still be really good for your beginning golfer, right? You're going to mostly fit their body, you know, their height and their wrist to floor, their biometrics, some of their swing pattern, and you're going to kind of do as good as you can. And those clubs are going to help them evolve their technique because you kind of get them fit to their body. Now we want to support another tier of that, which is to try to deliver tour level fitting experience to a lot of golfers. So that's around here. We're fitting golf ball. We're fitting gapping, you know, with some advanced software and some tools. We're feeding in all their launch conditions from a couple different clubs and simulating their flight uh, launch conditions specific to your temperature and altitude and elevation and your golf. We're going to fit the golf ball that's going to be optimal for you. And then just like tour players do, we're going to measure your on course performance and we're going to keep tweaking your clubs titrated to your play on the golf course. And so I think that's a good way to kind of look. And that's one of my mission is to look at the PGA Tour, see what they're doing, see what their coaches are doing, see, see what they're measuring and try to deliver those tools to the golf marketplace and make those available. And so, yeah, things like Arcos, we partner with them. I think we have, you know, over 30 million golf shots from ping customers that are using Arcos. And we're able to kind of study that data, study gapping patterns distribution of where golfers are, golfers are in the golf course, bring that into the design process, bring that into the fitting process and kind of have this, this never ending relationship with our golfers. So here's a follow-up question to that. How do you respond to the statement I, I generally get from people is that I'm not good enough to be fit. And in my, you know, Adam and I talk a lot about skill on this podcast, like what it takes to produce functional golf shots And I think that the higher skilled player can get away with less than optimal equipment. Like I was playing with lie angles that were wrong on my irons for years. Two degrees too upright for me. I figured out a way to make it work. But when they got flattened, it it helped me a bit. But I made it work because I was skilled enough. Whereas I often hear people like, oh, I'm a 15 or 20 handicap. I'm not good enough to get fit. Like what do you say to that statement? Yeah, I mean, there's. I agree with you. I agree that the and we see it all the time. If you have an advanced player, that you know, even that's why in some of our test design, what an advanced player does with the first shot it says a lot because that's before they've been able to make an adjustment, right? Unless they see it with their eye, they can even adjust to that. But and that's why we're we're trying to implement processes in our fitting that we're calling it game-like fitting. We're gamifying the fitting process. You know, so you take your better player, you throw them one, you you hand them one golf ball at a time, you create a pressure scenario for them right there on the range. They have a risk because they only have one golf ball and you're going to have them hit a shot. We're developing protocols around around that for the better player to try to prevent that scenario you talked about. You you know, you know, maybe you could get away and play pretty functional golf with angles that are one degree off, but you'd be way better. And let's try to bring that on course experience into the fitting process so you don't have to go play on the course come back and see us or adjust your equipment. So that's how we're trying to handle the advanced player. And then, yeah, for your question on I'm not good enough to have a custom fitting. I mean, that that's the fitting process needs to be different for the beginning golfer. And again, we're trying to have a, a process in place where the beginning or the high handicap golfer that's intimidated by it 
we're going to bias their fitting a little bit more on some of the time-tested things, their body makeup, their delivery, their launch conditions, their speed, and we could gain a ton of a performance and help them when they're going to be working with somebody like your, yourselves or on the coaching side that can help get them you have equipment that can evolve as they develop their skill. And that's one of the values of our adjustable CG position, our adjustable hosels and things of that nature, which ended up turning out differently than we all thought they would at the beginning of, you know, everyone thought when these adjustable hosels, you'd change shafts on a windy day or something. But it's really as you evolve your technique, you can dial in, you know, let's tweak your loft now that your handle's a little more forward at, at impact or something like that. And I think that's an enormous benefit of our modern equipment, some of the adjustable features. How much can you logically adjust lie angle or realistically i should say adjust lie angle before it becomes a problem so for example i played some of my best golf when i was about four degrees toe down so when when would you say does that become a problem obviously you don't want someone say seven toe down or seven toe up but i don't know i mean what what do you what are your opinions on that yeah, so our whole color code chart covers plus or minus five, and not all of our irons can do that. Some of them are plus or minus three or four, depending on the construction technique and some things. But yeah, we've always prided ourselves in being able to hit a very broad range, and our whole color code system covers a 10-degree range in line goal, which is massive, obviously. Oh, I'm and, talking about at impact specifically. Oh, at impact, so, yeah, yeah. So dynamic lie. So I played my best golf coming in to impact Four uh, degrees toe down. Do gotcha. you uh, do with not recommend that? Uh, no, with an iron. With, oh, with an iron. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, no, we're. I think again, that would be fine because we, as a, in our final fitting step, you know, it, it's kind of like a, it's a funnel. So our building block is your, your, you know, your, um, your biometrics. Then we still. Honestly, I know think of people say the lie board lies, but candidly, we've correlated your your impact marts of a diagnostic. We call it a diagnostic board now and the tape on the bottom. It correlates really well to dynamic delivery in Enzo, our 3D motion capture system. So we still use that. And then boom, that final step, final but most important is ball flight and turf interaction. And so if you're proven that that's going to be the most optimal for you in that final step, we'll absolutely hunker down around that. But at what range do you think? Because I can see a, an argument for how if the lie angle is severely off, that might affect ground contact. I mean, it's very hard to visualize, but well, I, I, for the podcast listeners, I can't create a visualization. So at what point would you see a dynamic lie where you say, you can't play that? <laughs> four, seems, four seems like yeah, a lot. that sounds crazy Four to seems me. like a lot. <laughs> okay. uh, so I, I don't know. You got any swings or anything of a, when you were playing golf like that? It'd be interesting to look at if you I had any video of it. I, but I that seems like a lot. I mean, are you trying – I mean, what, what's been told to me generically is that you want the – sole of the club to be level with the ground as much as possible at impact or else you're for the most part generically speaking making it harder to start the ball on the right line is that yeah a true statement yeah that's generally true yeah now we allow for a little bit of fuzz in there because some golfers they, you know, their impact pattern might be biased a little one direction or the other or depending on your attacking you know it's the three-dimensional delivery so depending on your your attack angle and your shuffling all that as well could could impact that and some players are a little bit more sensitive to the, in the turf interaction side but four seems like a ton you know i uh, think if you're yeah. within a plus or minus one window we'll, we'll we'll live with that generally speaking on our, on our end 
I, it was basically it helped me limit the left pattern. So I would have a face that was closed and then the toe down element would, would allow me to hit that more to the right. And it helped me then lower spin and actually hit it a little bit farther with a given club. But yeah, I can understand the the argument that it could cause ground early contact if you're hitting on the sweet spot the toe is going to dig in first but i never really suffered with that too much so uh, what what's the tour average then because i've seen some data that tour average is two down is that what measurement this is where you get into the nuance of the measurement system and and this is on gears on gears oh interesting okay at least that's my interpretation of it. That's the, I was looking at the tour average model, and yeah. it said it was um, two degrees toe down. I'm going to need to dig into that because I think in, in in Enzo, our motion capture system, and again, I don't know if I don't. We haven't done a correlative study between the two, uh, and I'm always a little hesitant unless we've really studied the uh, comparisons. We've done a lot of that with foresights and in in trackmans and camera and radar and, th- and things of that nature. We can get into if we want, but. I'll need to dig into that. I, I can't remember seeing it be distributed too far from neutral, at least on our motion capture system. But I'm, I'm going to jot that down and dig into that. Respond to him on Twitter. We're getting into the weeds here. Absolutely. <laughs> We're right, doing here, I have a, a question for you. You were mentioning golf balls. So obviously modern golf balls have come a long way. They don't spin when you want them to, which would be off the tee for distance. And then now you can spin them around the greens. They can do everything you want. Whereas, you know, when we were all junior golfers, you kind of had to pick and choose Mm -hmm. what you wanted. So with the research you guys have done on all, and I'm not singling out one golf ball manufacturer. I think they're all making great balls, but like how important like intangible performance on the golf course is ball fitting now if someone just goes out and buys a Titleist pro v1 versus oh they could have been playing a tailor-made tp5 or a bridgestone this like is there that big of a difference or is it kind of like it's 250 rpms here which you know may or may not impact your score that much like what are your thoughts on it I think ball fitting is is the next frontier. I think it's the most un, uh, misunderstood and and mis you know under leverage aspect of custom fitting in the golf industry right now. And the reason why is because golf balls are highly varied. They're more different than they've ever been in the history of the game in terms of they spin different. Not only do they spin different, they spin different on drivers hybrids, long irons, seven irons, full wedges to pitch shots to a greenside chip to putter feel. They're all over the map now and nobody can really like keep up with it. And not only that, you can't fit golf balls indoors. And the reason why is you can have a high spin ball that flies very low. Okay. So an example of that would be the right start ball. This ball, if you test this thing in an indoor bay and you're, you're hitting your, in your, you know, you're, you're getting 2,800 RPM spin on your driver. The effective spin of how high that ball flies out uh, outside is 24, 2,300 RPMs. So the companies have total control of these aerodynamic properties now. And so that's very interesting. So you cannot fit golf balls indoors. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to say that. I was going to say that because I I got a bunch of golf balls recently to test this indoors in my simulator 
And every single one of there's basically no difference between them. And I started thinking, well, that can't be right. Maybe there's something to do with the dimple design that would affect, you know, because the, the launch monitor is only measuring the launch, right? The initial launch and then using algorithms to predict from there. So I'm glad you kind of confirmed what I was thinking. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire. So it's a great place to get help. Now, here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024 and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonder Lux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. So what we've done at Ping is we've tested all the golf balls on the market and we wait till a day when there is literally zero wind. So we're basically hitting in a dome and then we can categorize the downrange dynamic lift and drag specific to every golf ball on the market. And we do that for drivers, seven irons, wet, dry. We can tell you if a ball's, you know, we're going to give you more of a flyer than another ball or not. Whether that flyer is going to exist in your long irons or your short irons, how much it's going to spin on a full wedge, a pitch shot, test different driver speeds. And so we're going to have a tool out there pretty soon that's going to help golfers decode all the mystery of golf balls. But I will say it's a very big deal. Unfortunately, there's not a great tool to fit them indoors because you're fixed to the one model. You're fixed to one ball flight model on, on all the launch monitors out there. And so right now, again, it's it's bringing that tour level. The tour player can go out and they can fit club and ball together. I mean, our tour players do it. You go to the, you, you go to the, the tour and they got any, any variant of every golf ball out there. And so you can actually measure it. Then you go play. Unfortunately, your average golfer can't do that. 
And so, yeah, I've I've used golf ball a ton myself. I started with the G400 Max driver. I love that driver. I couldn't get the spin down less than 26, 27, 2800. And so one of our tour reps, uh, Brad Millard said, oh, let me go get this new left dot ball that uh, Finau is playing. He got it and I hit it and I looked out at how that ball was flying. I was like, oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. What was the spin on that? I I expected him to say it was 2100. He goes, 2700. I go, what? It was the same spin, same initial spin produced a different peak height of like, you know, eight feet or something on my driver. I was like, this is magic. So, you know, golf ball is a big deal. And yeah, there's just not a great tool out there yet, but we're working on something. We'll have something later this year that uh, folks could help, you know, decode all the the mystery of golf ball. So don't trust the marketing. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. I think some of the marketing's good. The macro level describes what they do. I mean, the the problem is there's just so much nuance. Yeah. That's how I view it it is like, they're all making great I'm talking about the major OEMs. Like, they're all great golf balls. Like, I would never say, like, oh, that's a crappy ball they're making. It's just like you're saying is how do you match it? Like, for me, I have a very in-to-out swing path. I de-loft at impact. I'm a low-spin player. So, I can spin my 7-iron like 4,500, something like that, which is very low. And, you know, if I'm playing on a tournament, like I was playing a practice round for a, a tournament yesterday. I had a course that was like super firm difficult greens and and for me that's a problem because like i'm not coming into the green with as much spin on the ball i can't hold them so like part of me thinks like well what can i do in those conditions perhaps to help that a little bit so i'm not having a missile coming into the green yeah and and now there are golf balls that can help you hit it lower with the driver but land it steeper with the seven iron yeah like that 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 is a thing that is a property i, I just don't know um, which one <laughs> yeah I can, <laughs> can you help, tell me i can help you with this okay because i can it, help you with this i mean i played in a u.s open qualifier recently that was like concrete greens that are running a 14 and i'm just in my head i'm like terrified i'm like i need to land the ball on the front of the green or i'm dead and that just yes. puts me in a very bad place strategically and mentally stepping yeah. up to the yeah. ball I mean, that that brings up a great topic. I and mean, we've done a lot of work on this is that one of the other, you know, kind of where we started off, what are the one of the things that uh, the miss or whiffs in club fitting? It's like, you know, what is a good spin rate on your irons? And a thousand times your club number is, you know, that's only happening if you have my speed and my delivery, you know, it's uh, in the modern day with the lofts and everything. Uh, what is a good spin rate? What is a good launch is, you know, and how you... We're, we're doing that in all of our fittings. We have this like great chart. It varies with speed because your speed drives the spin, obviously, or I don't, that might not be obvious to everybody, but you need s- speed to drive spin, you know, in, in the irons, especially. And so uh, we've created these buckets where, you know, 4,500 for you is going to be on, obviously on the low end, right? And that's going to vary based on your golf ball. And so depending on your speed, we can put you into these buckets of launch and spin and give kind of a guide to launch conditions and, in seven irons but we we are absolutely 100 percent using golf ball on the back end of our fitting to tune that in with a player's clubs because we have all kinds of irons now we have i500s g710s they are relatively lower spin a lot of times we'll send folks away with a seven iron with a golf ball that's going to help their seven iron land steeper or we'll have an iron that's more precision iron blueprint i210 that spins a little bit more 
they have plenty of stopping power. They're looking for something better in the wind or to fly a little bit lower. We'll we'll tweak their golf ball uh, recommendation that direction. So it's fun. And again, it's a tour level service. We're fitting club and ball synergistically. Here's a question. What's the disadvantage of game improvement clubs? So bigger headed irons, would you say? Yeah, I mean, my... <laughs> My my extreme experience with this was playing at Wingfoot last year in Harding Park where I'm I'm in the rough with eye blades and I'm yearning for blueprints to be able to get it through the rough. And so, you know, one of the big things is just like your performance, your the versatility. You know, it, you know, you're hitting a shot of a fairway bunker, you're in the rough. Now, the the importance of that goes up as you become a better player, you know, and you have more skill and you're going to be playing a tournament with rough or your course actually has rough, you know, me in Arizona golf, there's, there's no rough, like it's never a consideration. So I've played bigger irons and it's never been a problem. Then you get in a tournament with rough, you're like, whoa, I need that. So I think one of the biggest downsides is versatility, but then also workability. And so I would kind of liken it to, you know, you have a car with like loose steering, you know, you get a big Cadillac with loose steering. No matter what you do, you can be loosey goosey and it's going to go straight down the road, you know, versus like you're going to play a blueprint or eye blade or our new I-59 iron. You got like, you know, sports car type of steering, you know, you make this little movement and it just does exactly what you want to do. So you have better manipulation of the face to path and the dynamic loft coming into impact. How is that though? Because why why wouldn't you be able to present a game improvement club, present a face two degrees open to the path or two degrees close to the path? What makes it more difficult with a game improvement club to do that? Yeah, it's related to the mass properties of the club. So you can think of uh, like the you know, one of the factors is sort of like the moment of inertia about the shaft axis, right? So if you had a center shafted putter and you put torque on it, it's going to spin very easily because it has very low moment of inertia about the shaft axis. You start, you know, putting the shaft over here in the head, you start pulling the shaft away from the center of gravity, that resistance to twisting about the shaft goes up. So now you put a little torque about the handle. It's not going to respond like at a one-to-one -one ratio per se, right? I can kind of use that as an analogy. It's going to, it's going to respond less easily. And so that, level of nuance is kind of in the precision, the working hypothesis that's in the ability to have more precision over the the face to path for a very astute player. So the same amount of twisting is going to result in less change at the head. Is that right? Yeah. And the consistency of it, like the ability to, to, to do that on command for the better player. So yeah, it has a, a lot of it has to do with the heel toe and the blade length and just the overall mass properties. Not not the club head itself, but the fully built assembled club, the inertial char characteristics of it. Here's a question for you. I actually looked it up. You are do you know you're the 1776th ranked golfer in the world right now? I am a top 2000 player in the world okay. right now. Yeah. So you uh, <laughs> so I have it. You've played in 11 PGA Tour events. I know you've played in a bunch of other pro events. Six majors, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you made the cut at the PGA Championship in 2019. Yeah. That's pretty that damn page, good. That was fun. Here's my question. <laughs> I think I remember. I couldn't find it. I think I saw a picture of you at the US Open warming up next to Tiger. Is that correct? 
Yeah. Somehow last year I was always next to Tiger. It was strange. I was at Harding Park. I was always next to him. I don't know if people like avoid him and like the spot's always open. It's the only spot there. But I think four days last year I was hitting balls next to Tiger. I mean, that's just magic. Well, Adam and I are huge Tiger fanboys. Can you (laughs) – did his golf ball sound different? Like what did like – like what is – I know he wasn't – obviously he's not at his prime then. But like what did you notice as a player at your level looking at him? I mean, one of the interesting things about Tiger, I mean, I, hitting balls next to him is like, you just get chills. I mean, it's like, what what am I doing here? You know, uh, everything about him is is magical. I mean, the way he walks up to the range, you know, he had a scent about him <laughs> when he aura. walked by. I'm not joking. He had a scent. Tiger smell. You know, I was like, <laughs> you know the, one of the interesting things about Tiger, I, I really noticed this last year or 19 at, at Bethpage, I hit balls next to him. And they borrowed another hole, and the range was slightly up uh, uphill, and it was very tight into the green bent grass. And I'm, I used to be real steep, now I'm kind of average, and I'm making massive divots. I mean, I'm just destroying the tee. Tiger is there for 45 minutes. It's this tiny little brush mark. I went over and studied it after he was gone. He never took a divot is very interesting obviously on the golf course is very different we've seen him like take some massive divots and hit way down change his technique but yeah every, you know when he hits balls on the range i mean he is clipping it and pulling up on that handle and hitting it low on the face uh, and i've heard stories of him talking about that you know it's kind of like the old set i've heard seve used to do that too i've heard but he it was very interesting like how he just barely clips the grass you know in the sound every single time and the sound is so consistent that he does it that, we um, talk about the sound so i've heard about this from from tiger i've heard about it with trevino as well i've heard chris como talk about how it sounds different yeah what do you think is happening during the impact interval to create that specific sound or is it just magic and we're all lost? that's a mystery to me i've pondered that a lot like is it just that it's tiger woods like what if i had the same 3d delivery and speed of his you know and hit his club and his ball right now would it sound the same or not yeah i i don't know it it's a total mystery to me here here's my stab at it I play in this tournament down in Bermuda every year, which is like a pro-am event. There's some really good players, some like ex-athletes. And you know Matt Parziali? He won the U.S. Mid-Am. I think it was 2017. He was a firefighter at the time. Really cool story. He made the he made the cut at Shinnecock at the U.S. Open. I knew he was there. And I was just – I got up to the range. I'd never seen him before in my life. I knew exactly who he was the second I walked up to the range because I could just hear the sound – that the interaction between the turf, it was a sandy range. Like I'm chunking. Usually I'm like, a le- I'm like, I'm chunking it. Like it and everyone else is struggling. And you just, you just hear this sound that's different. I'm like, Oh, that that's obviously him. And it was, it's just crazy to me that someone would notice that amongst the best golfers in the world, like a different sound amongst the best. And I, I wonder what that is, but I always hear about it. And I did hear it that time in a different context. Yeah, it shows you how important acoustics is to your memory and your, you know, or Tiger. In the case of Tiger, the scent of Tiger as he walked by (laughs) me on the range. (laughs) If I ever experienced that again, I'm having a flashback right there to... Right there at the DPC Harding Park. <laughs> well, give us some. You're obviously a great player in your own right. You have a full time job. I don't know how the heck you play at this level with all the obligations you have in your life. We talk a lot about practice on this podcast. 
how are you efficient as a player with the time that you have to making sure that if you have an hour to practice, how do you make it count? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I've thought about this a lot because I do need, I do think I'm able to keep a pretty high skill relative to not a lot of time investment. And, and one is like the mental permission. I, I give myself permission to treat my golf career and skill as a compound interest. You know, like, you know, I might not have practiced the last two weeks, but I got the last 30 years of my, you know, career. So that's kind of like the mental permission I give myself. And I, I don't know when I realized that or, uh, I think it was because I was a mini tour player, graduated college. I had unlimited time and I think that actually hurt me, you know, too much time and too much resources. There's no boundaries. Like if you're an engineer, you have no rules. Like, you, you know, that's actually a problem, you know? So I think the boundaries of a, of a time constraint are very healthy. You know, even if you have a lot of time, I remember, uh, I was right next to Jordan Spieth putting at, uh, Belle Reve at the PJ, I think in 18, and his coach, I remember his coach telling him, like he had his timer out, and he's telling him how much time he had left in his his practice. I guarantee it's like, it's like you know, it's like uh, it's like Parkinson's law or whatever. Like you know, it, it forced him to focus, and obviously, you know, time management for those guys and those athletes is very important. For me, yeah, I think I create a I create a plan of what I want to work on, uh, and I cycle between mechanics. I like I do a lot of mechanical practice and training. I'm a fairly mechanical player, working on my mechanics, especially in my full swing. You know, so I kind of blend. Okay, I'm having a mechanics day. I'm having a speed day. I'm gonna work on my fitness putting. I'll go and just do like a lot of block practice on putting. I find that very uh, effective for me. You know. Four to six to eight feet block practice. I find that very important. Then I'll do, you know, I'll kind of break it down into like each of the important segments, you know, green reading. If my green reading hasn't been good, you know, I'll go practice green reading for 30, 30 minutes to an hour and, and scope it out and try to do a lot of repetitions with a lot of focus in a very short time period. And I keep adjusting like what it is I'm going to work on based on, you know, what's going on with my game. If I'm driving it good, I had a teacher, a pretty famous teacher I used to work with, go to a lot of golf schools. He said, well, if your swing is seven out of 10 or above, don't film it, you know? So <laughs> I kind of use that as my rule, you know? If my swing's seven or above, my own qualitative rating, I don't film it and try to work on my elbow position or whatever. I just I just keep playing and then work on the, work on the uh, try to make the weakness of your game the strength and just keep repeating that. Yeah, I feel like as I get older, I'm not at your level. I'm okay, but I look for clues in my rounds, what I feel uncomfortable mm. with. And then I try yep. and work on those things in practice to make myself comfortable again, because I think things are always changing on us on the course. One day you're confident with your driver and then three days later, it, it's a mess. So, uh, but the skills there, like you said, I think there's a comp, what you said about compound interest, like the work you put in, you know, you can rely on that as kind of like a, I don't know, confidence in your game, so to speak. But yeah, I always look for, that's why I like game tracking systems like Arcos or ShotScope or whatever I think are good ideas because you can find a lot of clues in the on-course performance to use in practice. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, even the best players in the world, they're, they're, their bias blocks out some of their weaknesses. So that's where the data or having a coach or consultant or, you know, now you have AI data or whatever can, they can be truly valuable to point out to give you those clues on what to work on or you got an equipment issue or or something like that strategy issue i think Um, john and john and i have kind of boiled it down to working on ground contact 
face contact and then face delivery in terms of orientation. I think for most golfers, if they can get those three things correct or better, then that's going to be the biggest bang for their buck. And then you can go a mechanical route if you want with that, or you can just focus on... Like, say, for example, if if John or I are hitting a different part of the face, we literally just try and hit the opposite until we get it right. <laughs> it's, spectrum. It's literally spectrum that training. For 100%. Us. Yeah. Yeah, that's- yeah, my putting stroke, I was working on that. Yeah, I played a tournament. My putting stroke gets short, and then I have too much acceleration going forward. That's terrible. So, yeah, I was out there doing my spectrum training. I was going super long, you know, and just float it through there. Absolutely. I do a lot of that with with players, actually, in terms of feel. I, I make them actually make a short and an accelerated stroke and then make a really long and smooth stroke and go everything in between that. And it's amazing what people intuitively figure out from there and how it changes their unconscious mechanics as well. But do you have time for one more equipment question? I was going to say... How good are you with gear effect? Yeah, yeah, we can, we you know like the it? gear effect yeah. a little bit. So, oh, yeah. All right, so to preface this for everybody, gear effect is all else being equal, if you hit more towards the toe, the ball will tend to hook more. And if you hit more towards the heel, the ball will tend to fade more. That's specifically true with, say, a flat-faced club. But we know that clubs have bulge and roll built into them. How does gear effect change as we go along the face? So, you know, I've noticed with people that when they hit a little bit toey, it it can be a toe hook. But when they hit extreme toe, I'm on about like a 15, 20 handicapper now, and it's almost off the face. That can turn into a block with the same kind of face delivery. Is I've spoken a little to Paul Wood about this. Is that an effect that you you guys see that gear effect can almost be reduced across the face if you go too much extreme, or or is it a a constant linear progression up in gear effect? Got it. Are you are you talking specifically on drivers? Ooh, well, I mean that could make another podcast, right? But oh, yeah, let's, yeah, let's yeah. Let's stick with drivers. Why don't you give them like ten other variables while you're at it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's stick with just drivers for now, then. Yeah. So drivers, uh, no, it does not reach some type of asymptote or peak and then trail off as you go further. Gear effect, but the 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 outcome of what you're seeing, I will hypothesize this most likely at that point if somebody hits that far on the toe. That they're changing their deliver, they're changing their delivery. You know, their face to path or the dynamic loft or some of that nature. So that when you do see that, there's that other variable of actually the face delivery is actually different. So it'd be different than you know a robot where you just sweep it from heel to toe. You wouldn't see the effect of what you're talking about. So, where- so with a robot, it's very consistent. You go, and is it a linear progression upwards? So as you move across the toe, it gets more gear effect. Yeah, that's where it, it gets complicated based on the inertial properties of the club head. You know, and so it's non-linear, but it's variable, highly variable, and dependent on your actual bulge and roll design and the mass properties of the club head. And then if we start talking about irons where the CG is close to the face, that's very different. You can hit those on the heel and toe and they won't change spin hardly at all. So if you have the CG close to the face, the club's going to gear. It's not going to shear the ball. If you can picture shearing where you get the twisting and the spin inducing effect, that kind of tangential force that's going to start causing the draw spin if you tow it. If you do that with an iron where the CG is real close to the face, the face will just kind of kind of relax open and it won't shear the ball. You'll have a lot of ball speed loss, depending again on their club mass properties. You'll change the launch angle, 
but you won't change the spin very much. This is why like hitting low on the face, if you turn the gearing to hitting high and low on the face, this is why hitting low on the face with wedges is not really the reason why you get lower spin. It's because you have higher friction because you get less grass and moisture on the face. So that's a good, that's another example of gearing that when you put the CG close to the face, it doesn't really change spin a lot. If you see spin changes from other factors. Uh, here's the thing I sent Paul Wood was a crazy design of a face that instead of having just bulge or roll across the face, it has a W face, a W shaped face. <laughs> so when you get to the extreme ends, as you said, there tends to be some kind of, for whatever reason, a different face presentation. Is that, yeah. should I, should I copyright it, that or am I? Well, it's, um, <laughs> it's out there, I think so forget it. <laughs> on the macro, on the macro level, I mean, everybody should actually have their own unique bulge and roll profile, right? We can measure your delivery pattern, your variability, and, you know, make a custom bulge or roll profile for you. Oh, and then that would I would be have amazing. one. Right? Can you I mean, like, like 3D awesome. print a driver head at but, some point? This is all kind of like theoretical, but, you know, we're, we're, we're building the knowledge base around concepts that direction. That's awesome. That's all right, I, have, I have one final question. We try and keep these to an hour. Maybe it'll veer us over there. It's kind of a, a general question, but I want to see the first thing that comes to your head. We're all similar age. So as junior golfers, we kind of were taught, read about concepts that have probably been debunked, a lot of ball flight laws, stuff like that. If you had to pick one piece of information in the context of getting better at this game more efficiently that you now know based on your playing experience and all your research versus what you didn't know as a youth golfer, like what's the biggest thing that sticks out to you that we've figured out about golf? that we got wrong 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? I mean, what comes to mind initially is just like the, the, the importance of distance, like driving distance. Like if I knew, if I knew that if I could drive the ball 20 to 40 yards further than my peers, I would hyper focus on that as a kid, you know, and that would be paying off. I mean, I didn't, now I'm trying to catch up. That's the first thing that that comes to mind. Like you know, if you could just drive the ball so much further than your your kids you're grown up with, you know, in, in the it was now you got all the stats to back it up. But I know exactly. It seems obvious in hindsight, but it was not obvious then. I didn't know it then, and there was no there's no one really. You just had Jack Nicholas or Greg Norman, but I other than that, I mean, you know, Norman spin balls off the green. That looks like a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, I've it's certainly changed my mind a bit um we've we had a whole episode on me building i'm playing a 47 inch driver now i had a 44 inch shaft i was playing for years now i'm going longer and i'm hitting it straighter and it kind of debunked a lot of things that i had in my head so yeah i would say distance is certainly up there i know you're trying to help people with that i'll give you now that you've given us your time i know you have a new product out there so you can plug it a little bit if you'd like yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I like solving problems in every part of the golf industry, you know. So, uh, you know, one of them that has worked good for me, I've had access to Sasha, Dr. Sasha McKenzie's probably, you know, golf's, you know, kind of leading biomechanist and all does all the research on the, the kinetic stuff in all areas of golf, repeatability, heads up putting, you name it, uh, physical training. I mean, he's a track coach and, you know, crazy athlete himself. So, you know, we've worked on this training system I've used to gain a lot of club head speed, which is being able to make fine adjustments to swing faster than you actually can and slower than you actually can. Not not these gross adjustments, not like going to the gym and having a 
five pound weight, a 50 and a, and a hundred. And that's your only option. Like we need to be able to titrate that with very fine intervals to have you swing, you know, a certain percentage over your normal capability, then a certain percentage under and you cycle back and forth in a very scientific way. I've done that to gain a ton of club head speed. So yeah, we created a product around it called the stack system, the stack system.com, which has everything there together. And the app that we have iOS app responds dynamically to someone's training. This works good for kids to a long drive driver, to a lady, to an older golfer. We have a range of weights to go from zero to 300 grams. So you got 30 combinations with the combinatorics on our, on our hardware. And then the app, you know, coaches you exactly what to do as if Sasha was coaching your every session. It's like having his brain in the app. Uh, we're called variable inertia speed training because the inertia of the club is changing a lot. So you're changing the inertia of the club so you can rotationally and, and linearly swing it faster and slower. We've seen some massive gains. I mean, this, this, this thing's been a lot of fun to work on and, uh, yeah, I encourage everyone to that wants distance to go check it out. What's your uh, what's your club head speed at with your driver now? I'm 120 ish. Okay, you know, on the course 118 to 120, and I like taking my little PRGR radar and I throw it down behind my ball every single drive if I'm not playing in a tournament because getting that feedback on ball speed, you don't need a foresight or a track man. I mean, these guys are just probably just looking at their ball speed. So you can do that with that PRGR radar. Oh, quick plug, uh, you can get the deal on practical-golf.com. <laughs> I love that thing. Well, yeah, I got all my buddies I've, using I've noticed it. that getting feedback on your swing speed, using that over the last couple of years, especially in my house, when you don't, when you assume what you thought you were swinging and what you see, you, you, you know, some interesting things can happen. So that, that's been a very helpful tool for me. I'm getting to like 110, 112. So I'm not quite in your territory you yet, but it's, it's a, I'm getting up I there. I tell you what. Yeah. Any gains helpful. I mean, now we know, you know, the tricky part is like, how do you gain speed and not lose your other skills? You know, I think that's what Bryson's obviously been the most impressive about uh, being able to do. But yeah, I mean, Gaining distance is very important. There we go. We got a plug for each of us. If you want to measure your ball speed, go to John Practical Golf. Get the PGR, PR, PRGR, PRGR. Yeah. If you want to increase your swing speed, go to StackSystem.com. Was that the mm-hmm. StackSystem.com? Yep. And if you want to increase your smash factor, get the Strike Plan from AdamYoungGolf.com. That three, oh, that man. trio. The secret oh my sauce. God. Oh like, my what a God. marketing Bryson, like, What a marketing tie-up we just did there. <laughs> Adam, do you have any? I mean, we could keep going on forever, but do you have any closing questions from Marty? Or are we all good here? I, I got one, which might take just one second from you. With the ping, man, what is it used to, to measure the uh, to the robot, basically the swing yeah, robot? Yeah, that's a home. Yeah, Karsten originally designed that thing, and we've evolved it. Yeah, our ping man robot. Right. If he is hitting, or she, or it is hitting, a hundred balls with at two hundred and fifty yards, let's just say, what is the spread of pattern with that? So this is a robot hitting now. Is it hitting the same ball over and over, and it's actually at the end of the range that's landing on the same ball, or is there a spread there, and how big is that? Yeah, no, there's definitely a spread. And the question is, well, where is that spread coming from, mm, right? Yeah. Is it coming from variability in the golf ball? Is it become coming from the CG variability of the ball? Is it coming from the dimple pattern variability? Is it coming from the dynamic delivery of the robot itself? Is it coming from the biggest variable is the wind? Like, honestly, I mean, it's the biggest variable is the wind. Wind's the hardest thing in golf. 
Like, you know, nobody's cracked wind. So the biggest variable is the wind. That's when we do our ball testing. We, we, we try to test on a zero wind day. We have a weather station so we can kind of forecast that pretty well. So, yeah, there's definitely a spread. And the biggest root cause of that spread is wind. The number two root cause is maybe golf ball variability. And then number three is like, you know, the repeatability of the robot. And, and how, how big itself. is that spread on average, say you to have no wind or minimal wind? How big would that spread be? Yeah, on a 250-yard shot, I want to say it's probably like, you know, we'd have to get into like confidence intervals. You know, the ni- 95% of them would be within like plus or minus 10 feet-ish, I want to say, somewhere in there, on a relatively low wind day. You know, and when we say low wind, I mean three yeah. miles an hour okay. or less. I'm surprised it was that tight, actually. But we're not measuring the wind all the way down. If we have an important test, I mean, we'll just wait it out until we get very little wind. But if there's any puff of wind out there, that spread grows enormously, that number. That sounds incredibly yeah. frustrating and something that I will, could never be associated <laughs> with. I'd probably break the machine. <laughs> we'll come in, well, a lot of times the, the, the least windy time of day is before sunrise here in Arizona. So like our, our test engineers who run the robot will come in at like 3, 4 in the morning. Wow. You know, or if it's like the least amount of wind at midnight or we'll just do it at night. You don't need to see the ball or measure it on track. Wow. You know, yeah. So. I mean, I live on Long Island, so that's like literally an impossibility around here. Like I just live in <laughs> exactly. the wind. Yeah. Listen, Marty. Wish we, we had a dome, yeah. you know. <laughs> we appreciate the time. I'm sure we could have kept going on, but usually we, we keep it to an hour. We hit our mark. So thanks for coming on. We we appreciate it. And hopefully everyone got something out of this. Yeah. Great to, great to meet you and pick your brain. It's awesome. Yeah, super fun chat, John, Adam, uh, a lot of fun chat with you guys. All right, everyone, we will see you next week with another topic. Thanks.